project rate 48,000 hertz. Hello. Thank you. Hertz donut. Um, we'll start. Hello and welcome to Predator Minute, the podcast that breaks down the 1987 action sci-fi classic Predator one minute at a time. I'm John. I'm Aaron. And today we're discussing Minute 7 of Predator. Minute 7 begins with Dylan finishing the mission briefing and ends with Blaine offering something in a bag to Mac. Mac! We start this minute with a good bit of dialogue finishing up the briefing, like I said, where Dylan is finishing up the line he started at the end of minute six, uh, saying, grab the hostages in Valverde, hop back across the border before anyone knows we were there. And then what does Dutch say? What do you mean, we? Uh, I like the little inclusion of the double take. He catches we. When I see these kind of things in movies, I rarely catch them that first time. I have to rewind and say, oh, did the person really say we? Or do they really say this thing the person is double taking to? So obviously Arnold's kind of radar was up before he probably even said that, right? He was like, what is this mm-hmm. guy doing here at all? Right? He probably doesn't usually mm-hmm. interact directly with CIA field officer directly uh, ever for this kind right. of thing. And But then he catches on right away that, oh yeah, Dylan wants to go with him on the mission. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, like your point about the radar, like perhaps he was thinking the whole time, right, this mission is meant for my team, but at the same time, he, he had to know. I mean, he had to know something's up when the CIA is, is showing up with a mission briefing. Yeah, so he's, he's already obviously distrustful of the situation, so he's probably paying very close attention to those kinds of things that people tell him. He tries to rebuff him, saying, General, he's appealing to General Phillips, my team always works alone, you know that. But then General just backs up Dylan, saying, we all have our orders, Major, which makes me think, who is giving the orders here? Because as far as my research goes, CIA uh, reports um, to the highest levels of government. Yeah, so the, it's so I guess yeah, so I guess the CIA and Dylan in particular must have convinced someone even higher than a two-star general that whatever they're doing is super important, and so they need cooperation from everyone, and uh, they're evidently giving that to him. Yeah, so Dylan has this blank check basically to to take this team if they agree to it, which is something I wanted to ask you real briefly here. But do you think I don't know how to phrase this, but Arnold still has the chance at this time to say no, right? He can still say, uh, my team is not interested. Pick a different group of mercenaries of of a rescue team to uh, do this work, do this work. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is definitely the sort of last plausible moment in the movie for them to back off. But I think I pointed out, and this actually comes to a head later in the movie, where I think the history between him and Dylan is sort of what trumps everything else here. Not that this is some great mission or that he really believes in the cause, but it's his friend asking for help. And I think it goes a step further when you think about, like, anytime you've asked someone to do something, and particularly if you're going to, like, pay them, like, whatever they end up agreeing to, um, I feel like... Even if the job ends up like it's going to be really more complicated or harder, you still told that person and that person, or in this case, those people, you know, took the time, took the energy to come down with you. It would be like this big disappointment probably if you're saying, no, we're going to turn down the job. Well, like we talked about before, these are mercenaries. They're probably just saying, you know what, it might be a tough situation, but we're going to tough it out. We're tough dudes. Uh, we're going to complete this mission anyway. We're down here, might as well. Like, what's the worst that can happen? We have old painless and we have <laughs> razors and we have chewing tobacco. Nothing they can't handle. And we have Billy. I mean, do you remember Afghanistan, for goodness sakes? How could I forget? That's right. No, <laughs> trying to forget. I mean, if they made it through Afghanistan, then how bad could this possibly be? Exactly. Berlin, Cambodia. What did we talk about before? Battle of Wei in Vietnam. That's right. Yeah, this is just a little jungle. A one-day mission. How hard could it be? Yeah. Before anybody knows. That's what he promised. Before anyone knows we were there. 
Over promises. What do you mean we? <laughs> I'm afraid we all have our orders, Major. I like the fact that they call him Major a lot in this in this movie. I think one of the things they're trying to tread a fine line on here is trying not to define too much of exactly what these guys' role is. So you and I have already talked a bit about are they mercenaries or are they not mercenaries? One of the ways they sort of keep you from deciding that these guys are no good mercenaries, soldiers of fortune to do anything for blood, is that they refer to people by their by their ranks to make it clear that even if they maybe they're not necessarily currently active duty soldiers, but they certainly carry that sort of sense of honor and duty and responsibility that would go along with it. Uh, so when they are constantly referring to Arnold's character as Major and Max's character as Sergeant. Yeah, we hear Dutch telling, or we hear Dutch later on, yeah, calling Mac Sergeant to try to refocus him. Exactly. And you, yeah, use the title as a reminder, like you're you're on a mission, you have a job to do, focus here. And that's a, that's a little bit of foreshadowing for uh later on yeah before we go into the uh long tall sally and the music break and the choppers just want to give a little bit of cia talk because <laughs> this is the show where we really dive down into the meaning of things and look into all sorts of subtext that's either there or not there and cia talk would fit perfectly here we know that dylan is cia arnold knows that dylan is cia in particular what I believe that Dylan is operating as is a paramilitary operations officer, uh, more specifically in the SAD division. <laughs> SAD stands for Special Activities Division. And even more specifically within the SAD, they have the most secretive clandestine division called the SOG, or Special Operations Group, whose missions you'll likely never ever hear about because they won't be de declassified for decades and decades and decades. Um, but this is from Wikipedia about SAD slash SOG. SAD SOG has several missions. One of these missions is the recruiting, training, and leading of indigenous forces in combat operations. And then my own note is that the U.S. government can also claim plausible deniability. The motto of SAD is tertia optio, which means third option, as covert op as covert action is the option with diplomacy and the military. So if diplomacy and military don't work, you become sneaky and you train indigenous forces. And I'm sure that's what's being done here. We talked about that in a previous minute, but... Uh, you can hear the sounds of soldiering outside. You can see the quote-unquote local soldiers patrolling the grounds as they land the choppers on the beach, and Arnold receives his briefing. And that is exactly what I think Dylan is there for, partially, is to help train those soldiers so that they can take on the communists in the jungle, um, as well as just send the CIA information about the communist activities you uh, have done an impressive amount of research uh, and some of the notes that you sent me about this. And uh, I think my personal opinion is that I'm sort of in line with uh, what a lot of the criticisms are on the stuff we've read. And certainly when, when you just do a simple Google search for the military view of what the CIA is up to, it's pretty overwhelmingly negative <laughs> that... You know, like the soldiers are there doing kind of a, a visible, more transparent job. And like, this is what everyone agreed. This is what we're going to do. And so our soldiers are there to do the job. Meanwhile, the CIA is always betraying everybody, basically, and doing all kinds of <laughs> strange back dealings. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just my own personal experience of reading the news tells me that like all the stuff that the CIA is up to just seems like huge amount of work, money, lives energy and in the end of it it's not clear that we're getting really anything out of it in fact i uh, one of right. like the moments when i remember this most distinctly was uh, you might remember this it was it was a bit of a news story God, was it 15 years ago now uh, in afghanistan they had a uh, a jordanian doctor who was an undercover operative that the cia had recruited and they sent mm -hmm. him in to help sort of expose uh, taliban and al-qaeda 
uh, types in Afghanistan. And then he got turned. And right. then uh, I don't know if you remember the story. And then and this guy's a doctor, like a trained, successful, intelligent guy. And he went in with a, a suicide vest on to a meeting with all of these CIA higher ups. And so they had this big debriefing meeting plan. He's going to tell him everything he knows. And so they pack like 10 officials into the room. And then he blows himself up and kills everybody there. And uh, and this oh, is like man. an official well-known news story. This is not like some super secret thing that you never hear about or some conspiracy theory, right? And I'm like... <laughs> right. And I was, like, it's, I was just like, how much work and effort and money was it to, to do this? And yet all we're getting out of it is like making people so angry that they're perfectly willing to kill themselves to in order to get back at Americans. Anyway, I, I sort of feel like the the net uh, the net result of all these CIA operations is overwhelmingly negative, and the truth often doesn't come out till years later. But as it relates to this movie, one of the things that comes to mind we mentioned a little bit earlier the Iran Contra scandal. So mm-hmm. in in the eighties, the U.S. had uh, already burned its bridges with Iran, who then thought of the U.S. as the great Satan after the U.S.'s prior <laughs> CIA operations in Iran blew up in its face already, right? After they right. Uh, replaced the, uh, tried to replace the government in Iran and then end up having a revolution, complete blowback. And everyone remembers the 1979 embassy takeover that extended for over a year uh, ongoing and then completely right. broken uh, international relationship. And so we had this complete embargo on Iran. And then they found out we wanted to finance these rebels in Nicaragua, the Contras. And and uh, to fight against mm-hmm. the Sandinista communist government there because they were worried that they were basically a front for the for the Soviets there and were closely aligned with the Soviet Union. And so it was basically like having the Soviet Union, you know, very, very close by. And it looked like communism was spreading through, you know, Central America had already obviously been planted in Cuba for quite some time. And they were worried that, you know, if they could put nuclear warhead missiles in Cuba, as they had in the 60s, you know, there's no reason that they couldn't do that in a place like Nicaragua and then basically have the U.S. surrounded by, by nuclear weapons. But at any rate, the, the U.S. in an effort to combat that sponsored this rebel group, the Contras, who by all accounts were this extremely brutal rebel group attacking a lot of civilians and uh, leading this really horrible insurgency against a democratically elected government uh, in Nicaragua, which right. even though it was communist, it, it was democratically elected. And so we were certainly, mm-hmm. the U.S. was meddling in sort of an extreme way in the internal politics of this country. So the way they financed this this operation, because they couldn't get money from Congress to pay for this dirty war in Nicaragua, because Congress would never approve of it, they illegally sold weapons to Iran, the U.S.'s sworn enemy, and then took the money and went to Nicaragua with it to pay these rebels. And then they tried to cover it all up, and then of course all the truth came out shortly thereafter because it's hard to cover up that big of an operation. And then and by the end of it, no one went to jail, no one went to prison, uh, no one really got in trouble, and what we were left with was just this horrible civil war that dragged on and on in Nicaragua, uh, and then further bad exposure in Iran, who we had just given weapons to that potentially, you know, would be used back against us in the future. So it's like, what, <laughs> what, what exactly are we getting out of the CIA arrangement uh, exactly, other than like horrible civil wars in faraway places? So anyway. That's a long, that's a long little personal aside, but I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people that work in the CIA that are doing good work and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. Reading about the operations, it's just, it, it's just overwhelming and terrifying sometimes. Well, oftentimes it's overwhelming and terrifying. And one, those are the things that we actually know and people have come forward and say, yeah, this is what's happening. Meaning there are many, many things, missions and stories and people we don't know about. And two, you mentioned these kind of international operations and oftentimes like bungles and mishandling of information. There are actual operations that happen or at least nearly happen here in the U.S. You mentioned Cuba, and one of the things I came across uh, was this Operation Northwoods that was published in 1997. I really don't remember these papers being published but are being made public back in 97. But um, Operation Northwoods uh, consisted of the Department of Defense and the Joint Chiefs of Staff planning in the 60s these false flag attacks 
on U.S. soil against civilians and consequently framing Cuba for it, which would, in their hopes, raise the ire of Americans and allow us to go to war with Cuba over it. Uh, ultimately, it was nixed by JFK. But I mean, just just hearing that and hearing me say that and reading it, it's just, it sounds way too crazy for something like that yeah. to happen. But that stuff, it's super scary. And um, when I was doing the Wikipedia reading for it, I couldn't help but go to the discussion page for it or the talk page for Wikipedia. And the top, top comment of the discussion page for it, it was very poignant. Um, the heading was just what does it mean? Question mark. Yeah. And normally just to give a little bit of background, the discussion page for Wikipedia pages are really just basically these uber nerds about these topics, just arguing what is neutral point of view? What is a fact? What have you researched? What are you trying to like, what needs to be edited for this article? And the first line of the discussion page is just, I don't know where NPOV or neutral point of view leaves off and preferring life over murder picks up, but there is something to be said for the government institutions and personnel who could cook something like this up. It's just to the point, it's just very telling for, you know, by and large, a fact arguing bunch for someone to say, this is the worst of the worst. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> what what monsters could be cooking this kind of stuff up, like attacking your own people for the excuse to go to war? And Dylan is part of this, right? We're not we're not <laughs> we're not we're not pulling punches and saying, oh yeah, maybe Dylan doesn't. No, no, Dylan's clearly part of this. He's telling Arnold and his team this clearly false pretense that you and I both are taking Arnold to be highly suspicious of with his looks and with his hesitance and his not wanting Dylan to be there. Yeah, and you and you and I both did some research a little bit about what the military thinks about, right? We know what we think about CIA and intelligence gathering, but what does the everyday military personnel think of it? And if you go to Google, it doesn't take much Googling to learn that while some military personnel think, hey, th they're just providing intelligence for us to act upon, there are a lot of military personnel who do not look fondly on uh, intelligence gathering forces and see them as, like you said, a waste of personnel and time and money and human life. And those are the ones putting it nicely. Other military staff see the CIA as hatching these conspiracies and putting way too much at risk. I asked a friend who was in the military and she just simply said, there's distrust. Um, that's all she would say. There's distrust between military and non-military personnel, which I thought was an interesting way to, to put it, to say, right, there's us and then there's them. Mm. So last couple CIA details for this CIA details for this movie. Pretty fitting that Jesse Ventura, the modern day conspiracy theorist, is in this because he has produced and starred in a show for a few years in the early 2010s called Conspiracy Theory, where he and guest hosts will break down these conspiracy theories. Sometimes he debunks them or tries to debunk them and other times he wholeheartedly believes them. So I thought that was pretty fitting having the CIA angle here. But you also have John McTiernan, the director, um, in a couple of years directing the movie Hunt for Red October, in which the CIA is the big hero of the movie. Jack Ryan is a CIA analyst and he hops into the field and, you know, saves Sean Connery's butt along with the rest of the defecting crew of the Red October. Yeah, prevents nuclear war. He's a pretty good hero in that movie. Wasn't Tom Clancy ex-CIA? No. But after he wrote The Hunt for Red oh. October, it's interesting you say that because after he wrote The Hunt for Red October, uh, the CIA came to his house, or maybe it was the FBI. I have to go back and reread the interviews I read with him. But law enforcement came, government law enforcement came to his house and they wanted to know where he had gotten all the details on submarine warfare in his book. And so he pointed them to all of the <laughs> published data out there. And he's like, no, I got this all from real places. And then uh, he actually became a lecturer at the CIA after that. And I guess what his one of the things he lectured on was just how much information is available in the public domain. They have to learn how to be good at, at finding it and learning it to be good at keeping the stuff they don't want in it out of it. Uh, but right. he, and, yeah, and himself before, I think he was an accountant, as I recall, for most of his life. And then it was basically, he was like in his 50s when he retired and started writing these books. The, uh, is what I remember about, about, uh, Tom Clancy. But yeah, you're right. John McTiernan is interesting how in his movies, he, he, he regularly will portray a sort of a class of people as being the bad guys or the good guys sort of unpredictably. So Die Hard, right? You remember the FBI guys, right? Yep. We're the bad <laughs> We're gonna guys. We're going to need more FBI guys. We're going to need more <laughs> FBI guys. That's right. 
the uh, <laughs> I mean, he made them out to be, you know, monsters, right? And like, right. Uh, I mean, they've got him flying through the helicopter, and he's like, "Woo, just like Saigon, <laughs> have me some fun." <laughs> And he's like, I figured we lose, what did he say, 20, 25% of the hostages. Is that okay with you? He's like, yeah, it's fine. Yep. So Die Hard, he's like making the FBI guys to be out to, out to be bad guys. And then, uh, it's just sort of like, jumps around who he considers to be a good or bad depending on the movie sort of who he wants to portray as, as having ulterior motives yeah and it's like I guess I don't know if that's ironic or fitting that later on that's the thing that John McTiernan is busted for is trying to <laughs> yeah, gather right. intelligence right he's like wiretapping <laughs> yeah. people yeah, recording <laughs> he's conversations going, yeah he's going to jail recording phone calls yeah. and things like that without people's uh, permission did we talk much about specifically about him on our on our podcast yet if we haven't we should detail a little bit that uh, what's interesting I, I was reading about his court cases sounds like the judge that sentenced him uh, gave him an unusually harsh sentence because he thought he was being kind of arrogant and seemed like kind of a, a not nice rich guy and I guess he was potentially would have gotten a much more lenient sentence and would have been handled much more softly if he had been more conciliatory in his attitude, more remorseful. Yeah, I, I did hear that. That's like those scenes in the movies where the the person standing trial is, yeah. is starting to blow up at the judge and they're like, we're going to hold you in contempt. And, <laughs> and then they're like, the sentence or the punishment goes, it becomes even worse. And I, yeah, I always watch those scenes saying like, that never happens. You don't just like, like people are smart enough not to just be jerks in court, right? And just like <laughs> take the minimum that like, no, I guess that really happens. I, why, he, John McTiernan should have been filming some courtroom scenes, I think, when it comes down to it. So he would know for someone who does all this research. Yeah. Seriously. I saw an episode of Jesse Ventura's Conspiracy Theory once. Uh, and it was about the Denver airport. And uh, I remember being extremely unimpressed by it. The uh, <laughs> He mostly just walked around Denver DIA looking at sort of the unusual and interesting paintings all over the, the airport. And it was, if you've ever mm -hmm. been to Denver International, you probably remember or know that, yeah, they got some big, interesting paintings in there and kind of a unique architecture as a whole for the airport. And I remember thinking that it just seemed like an extremely thin premise for... <laughs> for whatever the conspiracy theory was that wow the paintings and the architecture here are kind of interesting like <laughs> and that was supposed to be enough to make you think that the, there's weird CIA conspiracies and aliens and like whatever else going on that, that is funny because I don't know if you've maybe you haven't seen the news lately about the Denver airport but lately in the construction areas they've started to mock those quote-unquote believers by putting up like pictures of aliens or they like say three <laughs> things that are normal to that construction area and then they'll throw like a, a funny one in for instance there's like a ufo in one and it says cool new areas to hang out or area 52 <laughs> <laughs> denver airport new concessions or new conspiracies and they have like some yarn with the pictures you know posted connecting them uh, okay it's so they're they're totally having fun now with with the people nice <laughs> so they yeah they are having a sense of humor about it which is part of what makes makes it all the more fun to, to joke about sure to wrap up the debriefing scene after the general has explained that Dylan will evaluate the situation and take charge once they reach the objective, which I'm not sure really happens. They just kind of you know, reach the objective, do the dirty work, and then take off down the valley. But regardless, Dutch stares at Dylan, just takes a big pull from that cigar, doesn't even break eye contact with Dylan. Dylan's the same. Neither of them blink during the entire scene. I don't know if you noticed this, but I noticed neither of them blink. Uh, it looks at the map for a couple seconds and then as it fades to the choppers flying closely over the jungle valley floor we break out into song with long tall sally by little richard and then we see the interior of the choppers with the red interior lighting um, we see a short shot of dutch listening on headphones saying yeah okay he takes a look behind him he sees blaine jesse ventura bobbing his head to the music a little bit trying to bob his head <laughs> to the music because right there's no music being played at that point probably and then jesse looks back at mac slash bill duke this is another fan favorite scene 
Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about the chopper first or long tall Sally first. Let's talk about the chopper briefly because it it's a quick shot and it uh, actually happens right simultaneously with the uh, uh, with the song that comes on and the song keeps playing for quite a while. So we can uh, mm-hmm. we can talk about that more in a minute. So it starts as an exterior shot about thirty two seconds and at thirty four seconds you get a really good head on of the lead helicopter, which is as pointed out in the prior minutes. These are UH one Iroquois also called Hueys. uh, We might not have said this before, I think, uh, but the Hueys, they're called that because originally the designation was HU-1. These are the helicopters Mm -hmm. that I had the most experience with in search and rescue. Uh, And the ones we used were uh, probably older than the ones they used in this movie. The ones we used in search and rescue were from Vietnam era. In fact, one of them still had bullet damage and one of the tails of the aircraft. But ours did not come equipped with any of the things that are seen in this minute <laughs> so uh at 34 seconds i point this out because it gives you the best view of the lead uh helicopter which is clearly outfitted as as a gunship i spent way too much time reading about uh1 iroquois gunship arrangements uh but you can see it's got two mini guns one pointing out each door so those would be m134 minigun which is kind of a cool prelude to the M134 minigun that is handheld, nicknamed Old Painless, what? that will... There's a handheld minigun in this movie? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that we will talk about in a right. minute. <laughs> in a later minute. And then you can see it's got rocket pods on the uh, on the sides there. And as I was reading yeah. on a few different websites, but in particular Wikipedia, uh, has a really good list of some standard armament systems on a UH-1 Iroquois gunship, and one of them is called the XM-93 or XM-93E1, and it seems like that's the one that's most consistent with with what we're seeing here. There's about 20 other standard armament systems for the UH-1, and if someone wants to spend some more time looking through all the different possibilities, the XM-3, the M-3, the XM-30, the XM-218, and whatever else they might see on here, uh, maybe they can decide that there's another one that fits more closely with what they're seeing, but that's the that's the one that I see that looks most likely. What's interesting to me is how much effort they went, evidently, to do this, because uh, John McTiernan says in the director's commentary that they had to ship these helicopters in from the U.S., and since I think I mentioned before, you can't really use an active duty military helicopter in a movie, certainly not the way that they do it here. In fact, uh, one of the things I remember reading about Black Hawk Down was one of the things that made it kind of revolutionary was that they they actually got the military themselves to go ahead and do all of the, the helicopter maneuvers that are in the movie because uh, they weren't going to let the Hollywood people take them or, right. or have them. And so in order for them to get all these weapons on this on this aircraft, they like had to do some serious aftermarket assembly. And I right. yeah, and I wondered who exactly it was that was responsible for it. You know, there's this uh, group that provided all the guns for the movie. Yeah, maybe they did that because they did some pretty impressive uh, uh, gun work in here. They are called guns, guns, guns. Ah, the gun wish. guys. We'll spend a lot of time talking about guns in this movie. The uh, so we'll get a oh, chance yeah. to talk about them more. There's they're, they're they're sort of their own character in a lot of ways. Uh, all of the different guns in this in this movie, and this is sort of our first glimpse of some of the weapons. Is the, is the stuff on the side of this helicopter? They make all these weapons, so they start with civilian available weapons, and then do a lot of welding and cutting. And presumably, they know more about exactly what's legal and what's not than anybody else until they come up with some pretty interesting weapons. Stembridge gun rentals. Stembridge? Uh-huh. Stembridge gun rentals. They also did commando. At any rate, presumably they were involved with fitting out the helicopter with pretty cool weapons, too. Nice. Does this helicopter loadout have a name? <laughs> do they give nicknames to the loadouts, like the the jungle killer or, like, the, <laughs> the peekaboo or the... No, just XM-93. <laughs> XM-93. It's all the nickname you need. That's it. I, I'm assuming just the way this uh, scene is shot that the gunship is not going to have any of the squad in it. It's, it's purely for cover because the way they film it is, you see, like you said, you see the head-on shots and then you see the rear of the front helicopter from the cockpit of the second helicopter. Yep. And from there you see Arnold um, taking, taking some radio chatter. And, uh, so that's just the way they establish that shot. Yep, you're absolutely right. Presumably this is a 
a, a gunship providing cover for, for the transport behind. And then obviously the camera shots, I mentioned John McTiernan said they brought three helicopters with them. So all of the filming is evidently done from that third helicopter, which would be there as a jet ranger, right? Interesting. So I take it that would be the same jet ranger you see on the beach with the Hueys? That's right. Yep. That'd be interesting if that was so, the case. I assume they're so. Just, what other helicopters? They're just using every helicopter. Yeah. If they brought them all the way down, might as well get their use out of them, yeah. Anyway, the flights I had in search and rescue were a lot different than this. We, <laughs> we never did anything quite like this. Were you ever flying at night in the helicopters? Oh, yeah. Done that a few times. What's the lighting like? Because that's one of my notes is to ask about the lighting either, right? Is this, does it have to be red or, you know, what does, what do, what are the night lights when you're flying in interior like? Uh, well, so in our helicopters I rode in, a couple were military, a couple were private contractors, just civilian aircraft. And then the ones I was in most often were operated by the sheriff's office. So they were law enforcement helicopters whose primary job was hunting bad guys as like SWAT operations and that kind of thing but they would loan them to us occasionally and uh, in those it was always lights out when we were in it at night there was no lights and then when you landed it was like everything's lit up there's lights everywhere so but uh, in the air it was just like driving a car at night there's the the cockpit systems were all lit up for the pilots but everything else in the cabin totally dark right except for that dome light where you leave the sliding chopper door slightly <laughs> ajar <laughs> Like you have to check, you yeah. have to check all the doors, yeah. you know, that yeah. when you're in flight, that's super annoying. Yeah. Like, don't open that one. No, 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 no. Can we stop and just close it? It's always the trunk. It's always the hatch. It's the one that's always, always, it's the, always the hatch. <laughs> but they have to see, right? They're, they're like prepping all their gear and stuff. So they have yeah, to so see. Yeah, so these guys are, are a lot different than whatever I did. So yeah, you're absolutely right. So these guys have to have some light so that they can make dirty jokes to each other and chew tobacco and yeah. shave all the stuff you would normally do before <laughs> going into combat. <laughs> You wouldn't want to do any of that in the dark. <laughs> Especially the shaving when you don't have any hair on your face or head. You, yeah, you need to be prepped. Yeah. But what I was reading about online when I was trying to do some research about what color the light would be, people said different things. Some people said blue, some people said green, as long as you're able to maintain your night vision. Because if you're about to repel down from a chopper into heavy jungle, you, you would have to have your night eyes on red i guess would be fitting for that sure yeah and you don't want to interfere with the vision of the pilots trying to look out the of the aircraft also right so they're not going to want their night vision disturbed all that much plus you don't want to light up the helicopter like a freaking christmas tree when you know there's guys on the ground that are trying to kill you yeah it made me think though because if you remember the map we saw right before they cut to the choppers the map's primary indicators on it were all written in red pencil so i don't know if that means the red light would wash out the red pencil or the red pencil was you know written firmly enough where you could i guess see the outlines yeah well, maybe I, they just memorized the red symbols and then in the minute after this i think they give up is the minute where they give a better look at the map from the interior with the red light on and it looks like they can see just fine okay I'll tell a couple of good helicopter stories that you might like here. One of my first helicopter rides was on the search and rescue mission where I driving in late to the parking lot. Uh, there was a news crew that came and ambushed my car as I tried to get out because I was arriving late. Everyone else, they hadn't Jeez. had a chance to interview. And so they wanted to like hear all about what was going on in the mission, which it wasn't that exciting. The uh, There were no aliens, didn't have old painless. It was just <laughs> looking for a guy up in the mountains. Right. The, uh, it wasn't that interesting. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting to me, but it wasn't, it wasn't like movie interesting. <laughs> the, uh, so the, uh, was in a hurry trying to get on the helicopter because the, one of the guys from my crew came over to my car as I was, as I was getting out and getting my stuff ready. And he's like, all right, we're leaving in five minutes. Let's go. And so I was trying to throw everything all together. Uh, we eventually pile into the helicopter and this is right around dusk. In fact, that was one of the reason we were in such a hurry was they were trying to get this all done before dark set in because everything's a lot harder in the dark. HU1 or UH-1 Iroquois, is not well known for its vertical takeoff power. In fact, you'll notice this if you ever start to pay attention to sort of the, the way it's portrayed in movies, or even if you just see them on the news or happen to catch one in, 
in your life uh, and with your own eyes is that uh, when it takes off, it has to do a lot of horizontal movement in order to get get lift. And uh, and I don't know enough about aerodynamics or aeronautics to tell you why that is, but uh, my understanding is that it just doesn't have a lot of straight vertical power. We were in this bottom of the valley is the end of the road. You know, large valley walls, mountains, cliffs, uh, tall trees all around us. So it really would have been nice to be able to do a straight vertical takeoff, but not very possible in the in the Huey. Uh, further complicating things is we're at altitude, and it was a hot day. And so those things all together mean that the air is fairly thin, and so there's just not a lot to push on uh, by the rotors. Whereas if you're at sea level in the cold, right. then you would have much denser air for the rotors to push down on. And so in order to take off, then it had to get some forward movement, but there wasn't a lot of space for it to get forward movement. And so what they did was they did this uh, corkscrewing spiral going up in order to, to get lift off the ground. And so it's you're in a continuous bank flying in a circle. I think we probably did three or four before they were able to get enough uh, elevation to level out. And uh, so the whole time I'm inside, you know, with my feet on the door, on the side door, looking out the side <laughs> window, you know, straight down to the ground, down to my car. Jeez. And we've all got our headsets on. Unlike in this movie, uh, they had headsets for everyone in the in the cabin so they could hear what was going on. And the, this guy next to me, uh, my buddy Steven, he, I'm sorry, my buddy Steven, I won't use full names here. <laughs> right. He'd been in, he's been in search and rescue a long time. And so this is definitely not his first ride. He takes his headset off and he points at me and he's got this huge grin on his face. And I'm, I'm a little bit white knuckled, you know, looking 500 <laughs> feet down to the ground through the window. He yells at me. He goes, Aaron, is this the coolest shit you've ever done? <laughs> Was it? No. <laughs> it was pretty cool, but no. It was pretty cool. <laughs> it was, there's, uh, I think, I think one of the things that I found certainly in my time and professionally as a doctor is that I really like having some modicum of control over things and being a passenger in a helicopter is like the least amount of control that you can imagine. It was just like, just, yeah, just completely at the mercy of a lot of different things that you don't necessarily trust. So God bless Steven and how much he loved uh, that kind of stuff. But uh, there were a few times where they offered me helicopter rides and I opted to walk because I could get where I was going on my feet. Didn't need to add any extra risk in my life. Awesome. That sounds like a great, terrifying story. <laughs> Not that terrifying. Mildly, mildly alarming. Sure. Oh, so it's it's super loud in a Huey. Am I able to assume that? Like, oh, yeah. You you're not able to yeah. hear anything unless in you In fact, have... I, the amount of talking they do in this, in this scene is kind of unusual for being inside of a helicopter. I always wore earplugs in there. It was loud. I didn't really want to, like, have to sit and shout it at the person next to me. Typically, the helicopter ride is short compared to everything else that you're doing when you're around helicopters. And so it's you really might as well just get all your conversation, like, done before and after, not not in. So this helicopter scene, I love the fact that it is another chance, and in fact, really the best chance for us to get introduced to the characters. Even though I, I think it's a little bit unrealistic that they're having, like, much conversation on board. And listen to music. Don't forget, they have the diegetic, exactly. the only diegetic music in this <laughs> movie, Long Tall Sally. That's by right. Richard, little Richard playing on the, on the tape deck. So I'm glad you brought Jesse that Ventura. up. That's, uh, that's, I think, a really cool song for this. Now, uh, I know you did a lot of reading about Long Tall Sally, and I think that was a, a good mm -hmm. choice for this scene. What, what all did you find out? I found out that Long Tall Sally was, Sally was written by Little Richard, the songwriter Bump Blackwell and Enotris Johnson or Enotris Johnson in 1956. It reached as high as number two in the R&B charts in 1956. It was recorded in New Orleans. And an interesting piece that I read about Little Richard writing the song is that he wanted the pace to be so fast to make it harder for Pat Boone uh, to cover, which Pat Boone tended to do a lot. He took typically African-American written hits and then he would cover them and release them sometimes in the same year, which was crazy. And then when he released it, it reached number eight in the charts in the same year, which I thought was interesting. That is interesting. It seems pretty unfair. Yeah. 
Yeah, it seems seems quite unfair. When I brought it up to my wife, she's, she said, "Yeah, you should you should mention that. You should definitely <laughs> mention that." Here's this white artist taking these African American hits, covering them, and releasing them as his own. Yeah, I, was, I read an article about this briefly. It talked about the fact that Little Richard had had an earlier hit, I think two years before, in Tutti Frutti. His hit got surpassed by Pat Boone's cover of his song, and oh, one of the reasons why was because he was white. I guess people, they liked kind of his version, which definitely reflected him as a white man better than uh, than Little Richard's song, which was definitely more in tune with, with him as a black man of black culture in the U.S. And to me, I was like, just <laughs> if I were Little Richard, I would be pretty upset about the way things were going. But I did think it was cool that the way he, uh, just as you mentioned, the way he combated that was by trying to sort of develop a style that would be really difficult to copy. Just keep it super fast. I don't even understand some of the words because he's going so quickly. Yeah, and I had to look up the lyrics. Apparently, Mac doesn't know all the words because later, when he's given his own cover, when he's <laughs> totally losing his mind yeah. later in the jungle, he's he's kind of conflating some lines when he's saying "gonna have me some fun," which is not said in the song. What is actually said in the song is "having me some fun tonight," and "we gonna have some fun tonight." So he's <laughs> he's kind of mashing everything up in his march to madness when he's going to confront uh, the predator later on. Honestly, when Mac is singing those lyrics later on, I didn't know for the longest time that he was <laughs> referencing the song earlier in the movie. I never, I didn't know until a couple years ago, as many times as I've seen this. That's true. I didn't know that until you pointed it out to me yeah, many, many uh, years after we'd seen it yeah, for the because first time. I think in the, before, it's, before the captions actually start saying, gonna have me some fun, I think it's just saying in the captions when he's going crazy, it's just saying like Mac muttering gibberish or something like that. And I just took it to me, oh, he's just like some like weird nursery rhyme. Something, something, she's so sweet. On the closed caption on the DVD, yeah, it doesn't actually say what he's trying to say. It doesn't pick it out. They clearly didn't have the appreciation for detail that we do. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Another fun little tie-in I would give this song is that Long Tall Sally, as soon as I hear the name of the song and just hearing a couple of lines, I'm, I'm immediately thinking of the Predator itself, where Predator is this long, tall being, and he's somewhat built for speed. <laughs> Which Long Tall Sally, the uh, song, is built for speed. Yeah. <laughs> I know, it's so, reaching, but that's right. In, the, in this case, the song is... <laughs> <laughs> making maybe That's some more point. sexual overtones <laughs> towards her traits point. but yeah maybe a little bit the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was reading the the Wikipedia page on this is is pretty good. And if I if I can trust it, and I admit I didn't do a whole lot of further research onto it uh, beyond that, uh, it sounds like yeah, the song's pretty overtly sexual. Yeah, what I find kind of interesting about that is uh, he said the song. Uh, there's a couple different inspirations for the song, but one of them came from when he was a little kid, and uh, he said there was this alcoholic lady that would come by his house uh, a fair amount, and then uh, one of the other inspirations he said was a young girl gave him the lyrics to the song that she wanted to help use to encourage her Aunt Mary. So I <laughs> tried to look at the lyrics and try to figure out why Aunt Mary would be encouraged by these lyrics. Where <laughs> there's a line in here where he says, Uncle John was running with Long Tall Sally and he saw Aunt Mary coming and he ducked back in the alley. Yeah, well, baby. <laughs> to me suggest that. Maybe Uncle John wasn't being particularly faithful to Aunt Mary, and I don't know why that would cheer her up. But <laughs> with notably know, bald head, Sally, I love the that's, I love the distinction well, yeah, that Sally is bald in this song. <laughs> so w Wikipedia uh, points out that he said in his live shows he would actually sing the lyrics differently most most times through. I think partly just because it says partly because he was just running through it so fast that. Uh, yeah. It was kind of hard to decipher exactly what it was he was saying. Yeah, so like, for instance, in the movie uh, when uh, Mac is quoting it later and he says, Long Tall Sally, she's so sweet. So that's right. not in the official lyrics. It says she's built for speed in the official lyrics, but I guess what I understand is Little Richard would often throw that in there in the live versions. And maybe he's saying, I'm going to have me some fun tonight in the, the live performance as well. <laughs> yeah, could be. <laughs> no, that's a good detail about changing it from the recorded to the live version and that happens in concerts 
constantly. You point out that in the movie, they show a close-up of the tape player. Yeah. And you said there's something interesting about the tape player? It's labeled as a goof in IMDb that you cannot see the tape in the tape deck. And I agree, you cannot see the tape in the tape deck, but I don't think that's a goof. So you're saying you think it's empty? No, no, I don't think it's empty. I think IMDb and the, I don't know, the lay person would tell you, oh, that's a goof because there should be a tape playing in the tape player. And yeah, you normally you'd see a tape in the tape player, but I think it's just being coy. I think the tape is actively camouflaged, much like the Predator in this movie. I think it's some really, really, mm. really infinitesimal foreshadowing you're having of, oh, you're not seeing it. Because keep in mind, you also see in this shot, the very first shot of the tape deck, you see, and this is some deep dive right here, you see the camera is slowly tilting from an angle, almost like a Dutch angle, to a straight-on shot of Jesse Ventura, where the camera is more level. And and that could be explained away by saying, oh, that's the helicopter leaning a little bit and then it's straightening out. But it's also one of McTiernan's uh, trademark moves is to display the scene at an angle for a slightly confused point of view. So they're given wow, a little bit of visibility. Or it could just be they forgot to put the tape in the tape deck and Jesse Ventura is you know, doing his best to, to sell it. Like, yeah, there's a tape playing in the tape deck. And later on, they even push stop on the tape player <laughs> to stop the invisible or non-existent tape. That's some deep stuff. Yeah, that's some deep stuff. I got to be honest, looking at it, I can't tell if there's a tape in there or not. I don't know how you know for sure. I think you'd have to have this exact radio and like <laughs> actually know what it looks like when there's Long Toss Sally in there and when there's not. If you really want to do deep dive listeners, you can look up what radio this is. I can't quite see the <clears throat> logo on the <laughs> that front. That is some serious deep dive. <laughs> serious deep dive. <laughs> The radio is appropriately seat belted onto the wall there. If you notice, it has this leather strap yeah, or leather, to the wall. maybe canvas strap sticking it to the wall. That's um, how else are you going to keep it on there? Just to tie it into some invisibility and music, just want to give a, a really quick plug to the uh, artist who provides our intro and outro music. His name is Chaosware, or that's his YouTube handle anyway. That's K A O S W A R E. And I bring that up right now because in his video where he is playing the Predator theme song, on this electric guitar he's edited the video in such a way where the electric guitar becomes invisible becomes actively camouflaged while he's playing it so totally worth the visual wow. as well as the the audio i think that's that's a way fun little detail that he put in his video Rico, what are some other things we see in the helicopter briefly uh we we see a couple trademarks we'll see a little bit more later on first off you see arnold when he's talking to the headset you see he's already put on his face paint um in the diagonal fashion but we see blaine when he's bobbing in his head. He's starting to bust out the tobacco pouch, which is obviously a big trademark for him in this movie. Uh, he's also wearing the what we call a slouch hat or an Australian bush hat. It's a distinctive style of hat where it has the wide brim, but it also has one side folded up. And the reason that one side is folded up on the hat is to uh, be able to sling a rifle over the soldier's shoulder, which I thought I thought was interesting, even though you don't, I believe you don't see him sling any kind of weaponry over his shoulder. His weaponry is all held about waist high with two hands. Uh, and then you see him offering his <laughs> buddy Mac in the back. Uh, Mac, he's, we discussed before, is shaving, uh, which we see a much more intense scene of him doing later on in the movie. So a little bit of foreshadowing and their characteristics right here. Absolutely. Yeah, I like the Australian boonie hat. That's uh I think uh this is our first look at them sort of in their in their kit, right? In their uh in their actual combat gear. And you can sort of see something again that we've already pointed out a few times now, but we'll say it again that these are not ordinary soldiers. These guys are not wearing helmets. They are uh, all dressed differently. They're not dressed uniformly. They don't have their names on it. There's no, you know, unit identification on them. They're just they're there doing their own thing. And I like the fact that they're all looking ready. They're looking basically relaxed, like they're like they're ready to go. Mm-hmm. One thing I will point out that's <laughs> it's very small, but I sort of wish they didn't have in the movie is when Arnold's on the headset. He's got one quick little uh, word in here, and his word is "Yeah, okay." over the radio which i mean granted maybe they're not standard military so they don't (laughs) they don't have to use standard military lingo but that's that's pretty unusual thing for people to talk that way and right Even in Search and Rescue, we uh, we didn't ever quite, yeah, we never quite spoke that loosely over the radio. We, yeah, we, Roger, copy, received, there was no, uh-huh. 
okay. Yeah, okay. Um, I think the only thing I have to add on to this before we wrap up is that in the script, the only variation I could find was Dylan reassuring Dutch of him being able to keep his edge before we cut away to the chopper scene. So the last of the briefing in the script ends with Dylan saying, not to worry, Dutch, I haven't lost my edge. They've got a head start on us in some real tough country. Otherwise, believe me, it's a piece of cake. Um, So there's a little bit of extra insurance we don't really need. So thankfully, the movie cut it. Yeah, they actually, uh, the script, there's a few more words that get uh, kind of rearranged and some of them get tossed. And the net effect is to make it more concise, which I definitely appreciate. They got rid of some lines. They got rid of a few words here and there. I appreciate that that they got rid of a lot of it. Plus, uh, in the script, they outline a lot of the radio chatter in the the helicopter. Mm -hmm. And uh, they sort of have that more as background in the uh, in the actual scenes again that's i'm basically every piece of dialogue that they eliminate i think was a good choice <laughs> yeah it's it's to the point where right we've, we've had very little dialogue and much more visual storytelling so far which i think most movie fans are going to appreciate much more than than a lot of backstory or a lot of unnecessary explaining where the pictures will do um will do it justice absolutely i should point out a couple other things from the director's commentary so in the john mctiernan's director commentary at the beginning of this minute he's still praising carl weathers and he, <laughs> he said that carl weathers he does and he, uh, he spends three minutes talking about him the uh he also has a lot of good things to say about pretty much everyone in the movie so it sounds like he was happy with the the actor's performances he talks about the fact that as near as he could tell carl weathers and arnold actually became friends on set i haven't seen that anywhere else but that's good to know and then the next thing he talks about is just this helicopter shot and he says that initially certainly what the script calls for you can actually see uh, is for the doors to be open and the doors open actually that's that'd be fairly unrealistic as far as trying to do something covert especially with all the lights on and everything but he said that's what the script called for and he said it was going to be a huge pain because they didn't want to actually film the actors or they they didn't couldn't technically feasibly film the actors in the helicopter in flight going through all their lines so what they were going to do was they just had a stationary helicopter on the ground and then they were going to blue screen beyond the open doors and he said that he hated it he said the actors give you a terrible performance because it's not real and they're always having to work around the blue screen he says there's a bunch of technical people on set right in your face the whole time and he said he didn't like it and it cost more money and so he said forget it just close the doors and that way it'll be easier for everyone to do it and he said he liked that much better oh, okay so they but they're still on the ground right with the doors closed filming this Yep. No, that's that. That makes sense, especially with McTiernan and everything we hear about him being someone who just wants to run the show and still wants everything to turn out perfectly. He's yeah, he's, he's kind of a particular director. But yeah, when when things really come together, you can see the result here, like the doors being closed or cutting certain scenes, especially later on in the movie. Yeah, he he makes some really good choices. That's why he's the director. Predator Minute can be found on the following podcatcher services: iTunes, Google Play Music. Stitcher, TuneIn, Podcast Republic. We'll have more to come. Predator Minute is hosted on SoundCloud for the most up-to-date subscribers at Predator Minute Podcast. Predator Minute has a social media presence on Twitter and Facebook at Predator Minute. I am John. And I am Aaron. So until next time... Stick around. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da-da-da.